So good morning. Again, good afternoon. Uh, if you can uh, have your video on, if that works with your setup, uh, I love to see people as I'm uh, speaking and conversing. Uh, some of you may have, uh, you know, a bandwidth issue, so I can understand that. So as I mentioned, I've been on retreat up until Monday for uh, the month of February plus a day doing a kind of home retreat. And I want to talk briefly about that, but mostly explore a theme that uh, came fairly strongly out of the retreat. And I want to I'll mention that just in a, in a short, mo a few moments. Um, but I thought I'd mention a little bit about the retreat. It was one that, in a way, I haven't done before, partly, um, we might say, a pandemic retreat, uh, that um, I stayed at home. I uh, did formal meditation practice about seven or eight hours a day. Uh, a fair amount of informal practice for bringing that same practice, as it were, as much as possible into the informal time, into uh, cooking or uh, taking walks or uh, doing other things. I also did a kind of work meditation, which I've been looking forward to, which is I cleaned up and decluttered about an hour and a half a day. For, for 29 days in a row. Wow. How many would love to do that? It's, it's how many would not love to do that? <laughs> okay. How many would both love to and not love to do that? Okay, probably all of us, right? So very, very satisfying. You know, a lot of, anyway, I won't go into detail on that, but that was part of my, that was part of my retreat. And I also um, spoke about practice with, uh, a close friend of mine who's doing very similar practices. We talked about every four or five days. And then I talked with people uh, close to me, um, more on the brief side, on a, on a, on a regular basis. And um, also from time to time, uh, went swimming in our local pools, which was very, very nice. So that was my retreat. But it, it had a a unity to it. It was so, uh, I found it wonderful, as many of us know from retreats, to not be scheduled externally for a protracted period of time, just to move away from that. And I think we, we know that that kind of uh, time, whether it's three days or one week or a month, often sort of clears away not just the, in my case, clearing away outer clutter, but also the inner clutter, we might say, and lets what's important to us come more to the surface. Generally, our meditative practice aims at that, but retreats can be particularly helpful in that way. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, uh, doing the retreat at home also had both, uh, had some strong points. You know, when we go away 
for a retreat, there, there are some advantages. We're, we're less, quote-unquote, distracted, and we may be able to focus a little bit more strongly on the actual training. And the, the downside of that, as most of us know, is that there, when we come back from being away at a retreat center, let's say, and we come back, there's often, we sometimes get thrown right back into our busyness, into our habits. And sometimes after two or three days, maybe for most people most frequently, after two or three days, we say, where is the retreat or where was the retreat? What happened? And there are, we might say, issues of integration and that when one does a retreat at home, those issues don't come up in the same way. And there's more of a chance to actually be bringing in our practices in the place and in some of the activities that we do every day. And I, you know, that's been important for me for some time. And there was an interesting theme that came out of the retreat, which is what I want to talk about uh, the rest of the time, and also probably next time, which is the theme of doing and not doing in meditation and in life. The value of doing, but also the value of not doing, and how those relate to each other, how we can use that theme as a lens for our practice, for deepening our practice. It can be a very powerful, sometimes uh, subtle, there's subtle dimensions of that theme. So that's what I want to explore. Uh, you know, the theme of doing, not doing. We're, we'll see that they're related themes that uh, we can, uh, in talking about doing, we might think about uh, doing and being. You know, do we do? sometimes rather than be. And we can also see that doing is often very connected with themes of time, of who we are, the nature of the self. And so that's the sort of the, the range of themes. When you look at themes of doing and not doing, we also bring in questions of doing and being, of time, of our identities, the nature of the self. So it's a, it's a sometimes subtle theme, but it can be quite uh, interesting and powerful. So as I explore the theme, I'd invite you to see what resonates with you, see where something strikes you as relevant for your own meditation practice, for your own, uh, for your own life. So I want to explore this week four themes. One of them, is, the first is the importance of doing in meditation. The second is the importance of not doing in meditation. The third is, uh, uh, let's see, the third is, let me see where, the third is that um, there is a whole area of inquiry around the nature of the doer. That's the third theme. And the fourth theme is sort of the, we might say, the um, integration of doing and not doing. 
And then I'll take that even deeper next time. I have some themes that I won't probably explore today. And I'll be, I'll want to give along the way different practices which you might do in the next week. Okay, so that's my, uh, that's my intention. So when you look to, for example, the teachings of the Buddha, it can seem like there's a very strong emphasis on doing, like meditate, be aware, be aware every moment, keep on with your practice. Some of you know that the last words of the Buddha um, have been translated in different ways, but one translation could be said to be an invocation of the importance of doing. Uh, it's sometimes translated like this. Conditions are always changing. Things are always changing. Continue on with diligence. I'll come back to that translation because some other uh, people have translated it differently, but it, it could be, see, everything is changing. You will die. Be diligent with your practice. That could be in, seen as an invocation uh, to doing. And uh, actually, uh, the teacher and scholar uh, Stephen Batchelor uh, looked at that line more carefully. The, the word that's translated as diligence could also be translated as care. It's apamada, A-P-P-A-M-A-D-A. -A -A. And he said that you could also translate that as proceed on. In, in, the actual, in the actual text, it was originally said the lines were a little different than I gave. It says, work out your salvation with diligence. Those were the original lines, supposed to be the last words of the Buddha. You could also say, work out your salvation with care, or work out your practice with care. And the care would be the care to bring wise intention into each moment. How to do that. How to have that sense of continual intention to be present, to be mindful, to attend to what is skillful, to what is right in the moment. And so, and we also have uh, from the teachings of the Buddha a sense that this almost takes continual in the, in the uh, cosmology of the Buddha, this takes many, many lifetimes. Many, many lifetimes we might say of doing, of diligence, of practice, of developing ethical um, qualities, of developing equanimity, of developing the loving heart, that these are all qualities which uh, one does with practice. Another core teaching is that uh, we need to continually manifest what's called right effort or wise effort. Uh, the effort to uh, especially to be present, to be aware, be mindful. And this is one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, often expressed in four ways. What is wise effort? Wise effort is, you know, basically staying out of difficult states, staying out of trouble. Secondly, knowing what to do if you get into difficult states. If you get in, you know, we might say emotional, spiritual trouble. Thirdly, keep on developing positive qualities 
and keep them going. That's the fourth. That's a sort of a thumbnail sketch of what wise effort is about. And so we often may have a sense of that in our own practice, that there is very important to have an emphasis on doing. I should, quote-unquote, do my practice every day. I should uh, um, do whatever, half an hour, once a day, or, you know, I should do retreats. I should uh, have my... How many of you have a meditation to-do list? How many of you have, like, a to-do list for meditation, right? So we often have that sense that uh, doing is really crucial. And I think that's true. There's a certain amount of uh, diligence, of commitment, of, of repetition. Uh, we can think of meditation and our practice more generally as like a training. And it requires commitment and that coming back to doing. So I think it's very clear that there is an important role for doing, what we could call a certain kind of doing, in our practice. Yet we could also say that there's a very important place for not doing. And sometimes we don't see this as clearly. We may mostly have our meditative to-do list, but we might also be invited to have our meditative do-not-do list or our meditative not-to-do list. Does anyone have a meditative not-to-do list? Less common, right? You might put that up on your refrigerator. My meditative not-to-do list, okay? Uh, that's an option for, for our practice. So, um, you know, for me initially... Uh, I started meditating when I was a student, and I think I had been more or less guided to be thinking all the time uh, as a student. And so a lot of my initial uh, meditation, in a sense, I had to learn to let go of continual thinking. There was an important quality of uh, letting go of thinking, in a sense of not doing in a way, not doing my thinking. And then in, it's, it's helpful to see that in, even in our basic mindfulness training, there's a very important place for not doing. We could also talk about this in terms of receptivity, that in our mindfulness practice, we could say there's, there's a quality of active effort but there's also a kind of a not doing, which is more receptive. And so in our mindfulness practice, it's very important to deliberately focus on the breath, keep coming back when we're off the breath, use uh, labeling, if you use that technique, to identify, oh, there's a planning thought, there's a uh, uh, remembering thought, oh, there's my... Uh, financial concern number three thought. There is my relationship issue number 27 thought. That's coming up again, right? And uh, it's helpful. This is all a kind of doing in our mindfulness, which is very important, where we're putting out effort to stay with what's present, to stay with our primary object, the breath or something else, 
Those are all forms of doing. But there's also, very key, a receptive dimension to mindfulness. And that's the dimension where we let go of the doing. And when we're with, for example, a body sensation, we let go of the doing and we're just receptive to sensation. We let the sensation be there and be present. And it's actually important to be able not to do anything. And especially when, for example, we're being with what's unpleasant. We want to be able to be with the unpleasant when it's in the workable range, not too much. We want to be able to be with the unpleasant in a receptive way without so much doing. And that's sometimes a challenge. We may be with unpleasant sensations, let's say, in my shoulder, let's say, that are not too bad. I can be with them and I can study my relationship to being with the unpleasant. That's sometimes not easy because we might find ourselves continually wanting to do something about the unpleasant, right? I should fix it. I should make the unpleasant go away. I should bring relaxing mindfulness to my shoulders so the unpleasant isn't there. So some forms of uh, receptivity aren't so easy. Can I be receptive with unpleasant sensations? Can I be receptive and just sit back and be present with anger or with sadness or with fear? Can I just let those be and be present? So there's a very important place for actually not doing, we might say, and just sitting back and being receptive. And probably ultimately the two come together in mindfulness because we want to notice what's happening, let's say, with unpleasant experiences. But we also need a certain amount of receptivity. Um, can I just be with that? And this is really also related to with our awareness, with our mindfulness, adjusting it much like in a famous image of the Buddha, he talks about letting our awareness and almost our being be like a stringed instrument, not too tight, not too loose. And so it's actually a practice that we can do individually to ask ourselves, are my predominant tendencies oriented more around doing or more around not doing? We can also ask, am I generally too tight or too loose? And asking these kind of questions can lead us to make adjustments. If my practice is mostly a doing, I might want to make an adjustment by saying, let me be more receptive. Let me let go of the doing more, particularly when there are sensations or emotions that are lasting for a while. Let me just be with what's happening. We can also do this with hearing. It's a beautiful practice. Many of us learn that quality of receptivity in hearing, being with the sounds of a creek or a river. 
being with the sounds of music. We need a certain kind of receptivity, right? So we can look and ask, do I need to make adjustments there? We can also ask, do I need to make adjustments in terms of being too tight or too loose? Not quite the same as doing and not doing, but related. And we can actually work with an intention at the beginning of a session, let me be more receptive, or let me be a little more relaxed or less tight. Let my effort be not too controlling. We can, we can give that kind of uh, guidance to ourselves. And so I was thinking of that uh, you know, way that we balance the doing and not doing. Some of you know the famous line, I think it's one of Sylvia's books. Uh, Don't just do something, sit there, right? There's also the balance between the doing and the uh, contemplative, you know, and even in our, even in our lives generally, many of us work with the balance of how much attention should I give to my contemplative practice, my meditative practice, and how much to helping others. How much to acting for uh, a better world, right? And so there's a balance there, and there are sort of uh, imbalances that can exist on either side. Some may be really into meditation, but not deal so much with the external. And very, very common, I think, for many activists, there may be an over-attention, we might say, on action, service, the external, without attending so much to the inner, which can have all sorts of uh, negative effects. You know, I remember when I s- spoke at a uh, conference on, that was on uh, spiritual activism, you know, pe- you know, we could see very clearly how some, some of the major difficulties of people who are so-called activists come from the lack of an inner dimension. And personally, I think that what we need in our times is deep, contemplative practice connected with deep action and have those be very integrated. That could be another talk, but I won't go so forth there now. But they're they're all versions of this, looking at this balance of uh, doing and not doing. And we have to, I'll talk about this more in a moment, but we have to, we can look at some humor, even the way that, especially if we are doers, that we might even approach not doing as a kind of doing. I need to let go. Okay. Let me put letting go on my to-do list. Let me put not doing on my to-do list. And I'll, I'll come back to that, talking about my own experience. Um, let's see. So a third theme that I want to uh, explore uh, really relates to what I was just talking about. This is ways of looking at uh, the, the imbalance towards be overdoing things, being more of a doer. We get caught often in doing. And I think many of us can see this in a lot of very everyday experiences. How many of you have been on a vacation for a time when you didn't need to do anything and gotten nervous because you weren't doing anything. How many can 
remember that from maybe from a vacation. Um, what I, you know, uh, I counsel several people and have counseled several people who are moving into what we call in this culture retirement. And a lot of issues arise as to almost like, who am I without my work, without my doing? Who am I without my job? It can arise in a quite uh, difficult way. You know, I'm moving into something else, but I'm giving up my sense of identity that I've had for, what, 20, 30, 40 years. Who am I without my doing? Who am I without my doing? Um, we also get very, very, very involved with uh, being busy and getting, again, as I mentioned, getting nervous about not doing things. How many of us often find that we are busier than we would like? And some of this is personal. Some of this is very cultural and social. You know, we're in a society which tends to set up certain kinds of work so that we are very, very, very busy. You know, and it almost comes with certain jobs where maybe you're expected to do 50 or 60 hour weeks or take your work home with you, right? So some of it's social and cultural. You know, and I know there, there's an interesting line. I, I've mentioned this from time to time. Um, in the Japanese language, and, and a lot of Japanese culture is also, also very busy. There's a lot, there's a, the figure for being busy in Japanese, the character translates as the heart dies. That's fairly poignant, isn't it? The character for being busy in Japanese is the heart dies. Something is lost, right? That's, I think that's in the, that's in the ordinary language. And this is where we also, where the doing gets caught up with a sense of time and schedule. You know, so what I'm, what I'm inviting people to do, so to speak, is to look into our sense of ourselves as doers as much as possible in a non-judgmental way. Just seeing what's there. It's actually fascinating because it's such strong conditioning for so many of us to be a doer. There also are gender dimensions. You know, I think generally men tend to be more conditioned to be doers, right? And women tend to have more of the receptive aspect um, in the, in, you know, encouraged in the conditioning. So I think 75% of therapists who, like, who are, are good at being receptive and listening are women. 75% of psychotherapists and women tend to actually, when they do studies, they find that women are actually more empathic than men. And it doesn't seem to be uh, entirely, uh, dis entirely uh, connected with conditioning, actually. It may be through generations and generations of being primary caregivers that somehow got worked into the DNA. People are the people who study that are not clear, but it is clear in the studies that women tend to be more empathic, which is a receptive quality. You know, that's in the literature. 
There are also, I should be clear, a lot of very empathic men, just, just to be clear. Okay. And many of them were probably overrepresented over right here, of course. We'll see. No, we won't, we won't do studies. And so, um, but that sense of being on schedule, I was thinking of, uh, I was, uh, I have a friend who is uh, what they call in Canada First Nations, and I was invited to go to a potlatch ceremony, which took place in uh, northern British Columbia. Our friend from Vancouver, who's in on our session, well, if you know, this is, I went to Bella Bella. Uh, which is where the Hylsuk uh, people are. And it was, I was there for about a week. The potlatch itself was a three-day ceremony. And it didn't really operate with a strict schedule. It was very interesting. It kind of started every day, maybe 2 or 3 p.m. But it wasn't rigidly scheduled. And then it kind of went till it finished, which was often at 2 or 3 in the morning. And it just did that every day, right? There was kind of a rhythm to it, but it was not on a usual time schedule. And so, again, it's interesting to look at how much are our identities connected with doing, often connected with time and schedule. You know, I was thinking of, we go uh, maybe to a party, or can people remember when you went to parties? Anyone remember going to a party sometime in the distant past? Okay. Anyway, Imagine going to a party, or maybe we could, could do this on some Zoom calls. And what do people often ask you as by way of introduction? What do you do? That's interesting, isn't it? In terms of this theme of doing, what do you do? They don't see, people don't say, who are you? Introduce yourself how you would like to be introduced. People don't say that. We say, what do you do very commonly, right? And uh, it's a whole setup, right? So often that sense of uh, uh, doing is, is, very, is very, very strong. And often we need to have that identity of being a doer, as I was mentioning, where things are not so meaningful. And there can be, uh, I was noticing just even in clearing up stuff and decluttering, there can be a sense of, almost like a concern about letting go of some parts of my identity as a doer, right? We can see that. We can see that very clearly, maybe when we switch jobs or don't have work or can see that maybe people are unemployed or laid off. It's a time of a lot of vulnerability because our sense of our identity may be in question. And we can see politically how people in that situation are very vulnerable to demagogues. That's also, you know, we can see that when we look. And so, uh, you know, I, w I was looking particularly uh, in my own practice and something I've looked at a lot of times is how much do I have an identity as a doer, even as a good meditative doer? I, you know, who am I? I am a good meditator. I do meditation well. And there can be a kind of a underlying belief there. And of course, there again, there's a value of doing. And I, I, I thought of several experiences where this came very strongly into my own experience. One was about 30 years ago, 
Um, I was on a longer retreat and I was quote unquote doing concentration practice and I thought of myself as a very good doer and a good meditator and I actually I, I overdid it so to speak and actually like burned out a certain fuse in my mind and I got pain from over concentrating in my head that lasted actually for a while and and I had to, in a sense, for about the next three years, come to a quality of quiet and stability of mind and concentration with zero effort. In other words, I had to come through not doing to the same place that I had come to through doing. And I, I didn't have an alternative because every time I would concentrated all. Initially, even when I would be driving and look at a traffic light, I'd get some pain in my head. It took about three years to resolve. It was interesting. It came out of overdoing. But I instantly knew that, oh, okay, I, get, I got it. Thank you. Thank you, universe. I got that one. And I, I had, you know, I had a sense, yeah, I need to let that quality of peace, stability, awareness um, come without the usual doing. And it happened. It was really interesting that just to happen without trying so hard. And there was also um, a similar experience, a similar, well, maybe related experience. About 20 years ago, I was doing a retreat with Christopher Titmus, about a 10-day retreat. And he gave me interesting guidance. He said, for this retreat, don't do anything don't even meditate, but don't be distracted. So how can you do nothing, no meditation, and not be distracted? And he also said, and also be aware of the absolute. But he didn't tell me what that meant. So there I was. So, and it was a very, I, I loved it. I was, this was actually at a retreat center in England called uh, Gaia House, and I was meditating, and I was just walking, it was in southwest England, and I was just walking through fields, and I loved it. Oh, I love this not doing. And, you know, I just wander, but I would try to be present. And then um, I actually noticed myself sometimes saying to myself, uh, I'm doing non-doing really well. I said, whoa, okay. So the, the non, the conditioning is strong. Right. And so um, but but I learned from that and it was it was a very, very uh, interesting experience. And I really loved that. Um, I love that sense of not doing and that actually I could be deeply present and have all of the qualities there. And I think this is not this is not guidance we would necessarily give in beginning practice, right? So I want to say that this, there is a developmental aspect to this, that often we, we lead with the doing, but that at a certain point we bring in the non-doing. I think, you know, at different levels. And in this recent retreat, I was given some guidance to let a kind of deep primordial wisdom come forth with no doing, with no sense of doing at all. And again, for someone who is a meditative doer, has definitely conditions around doing, but even though I've worked with this a long time, it brought up stuff. 
And it was, it was a, again, brought up a certain uh, challenge to what we might call a limiting belief that I need in my meditation to keep doing something, right? And it was an interesting exploration of what we might call that limiting belief, which I think probably many of us have some version of that. I need to keep doing things. You know, I need to keep meditating. Again, I'm going to point to a balance between doing and not doing. That's really what I'm pointing towards. And I, I found a quotation from that expresses this from one of the great Tibetan teachers. Some of you may know Long Chenpa, who lived in the fourth century, 14th century. And this is, this is from uh, one of his writings. Awakened mind is by nature primordially pure. The true nature of phenomena is such that there is nothing to discard or adopt, nothing that comes or goes, nothing to achieve by trying. Let your mind and body relax deeply in a carefree state with an easygoing attitude like a person who has nothing to do. That's advanced meditation guidance, right? Because it's basically saying that the most deeply awakened state isn't something that you achieve by doing. Rather, that it's a natural expression of our depths. And of course, the question is, how does that manifest? How does that come out? I'll talk more about that, I think, next time. And so, last thing I think I want to talk about is some ways of practicing and inquiring. And I think next time I'll talk about other ways of balancing doing and not doing, and in a way, pointing towards having our doing come out more of non-doing, our doing come out of being. But for the next time, I want to suggest some ways that we can practice in this way. And I've been given different um, suggestions for practice. So, you know, I mentioned already that we can ask ourselves, do I tend to be more of a doer or more receptive? And if I'm more one way, I can invite the other. Is there more tightness or more looseness? Some of us need to actually do more to enhance our practice. Some of us need to do less and be more receptive. Where do I fall on that spectrum? Is my mind too tight, like the too tight string instrument or too loose? If we are more doers, as many of us are, we can have an intention at the beginning of a sitting to at certain times invite that non-doing, that receptivity. We could even one way of practicing might be to practice with the doing that helps us have more stability, more presence, more centeredness, the first half of the sitting, and then invite non-doing the second half. That might be interesting. Again, we're not looking for distraction, but we're looking for being present, but not doing. Not easy, right? Normally, we use the doing as a way to be more present. Can I also be more present and not be doing anything. Again, we can experiment also with taking walks, listening to music, being listening to a friend, being receptive. 
So that's another way of practicing. We can also study the doing mind. Watch our mind. Do we keep on saying, I need to do something? Watch when you get nervous about not doing anything, maybe on a day when you don't have as much to do, you know, and see how some of the habitual behavior could be what? Shopping, making a phone call, looking at my phone, surfing the internet. How much do all of these come out of, I got to do something, I'm nervous about not doing? Look into that, inquire, take notes on what you find in your own, in your own mind. We can inquire, is some of this connected with gender conditioning? You know, am I, uh, you know, am I conditioned to be a doer in certain ways? You know, and is that related to, to gender? Um, look at the tendencies to when you're maybe listening to a friend. How much do I want to do something? Maybe a friend is in some distress and talks to you. Can I just listen without trying to fix things? How many of us sometimes notice a tendency to want to fix, fix things, fix others, fix ourselves, right? So notice those tendencies. Again, very crucial to do so non-judgmentally, you know, to, to really just listen uh, empathically. There's a very interesting practice that I learned from uh, someone I trained with named uh, John Eisman who is a, a master therapist. And I learned this doing the Hakomi training, which is a wonderful, uh, I did a two-year training in body-based psychotherapy at one point. And John has a practice of looking for what he calls the organic impulse, like which is beneath one's conditioning. And many of us, it's squashed. We get into habits, conditioned behavior, we actually don't know what we really want. And when we do meditation, we carve away or we take away some of these levels of conditioning. And we can actually sometimes, can I listen beneath the conditioning for what I want? You know, I have a, some open time. What really calls me? We could call this the intuitive mind. Can I listen for my intuition that tells me this is what I deeply want? Can we distinguish it? from the conditioning, from the habits, right? Not easy, right? But that's, that can be a whole, whole practice. Um, look, yeah, look for what keeps the busyness going, you know. Um, study the mind when you're busy, when there is conditioning. Maybe even reflect on how much of this goes back to childhood conditioning. You know, I think that that's true for me. I'm good. If I do things well, that can be a message we learn at a very young age. I'm good if I do things well, if I perform well, you know, and it helps if I'm perfect. Okay, I won't go so much into that, but so many of us have that. So any case, that's the invitation for next time. So let me just invite everyone to, how many of you would like to look into this theme of doing and not doing for the next next period of time. Great. So take take a few moments now. I gave a lot of potential practices. Which of those appeal to you? Or maybe you have your own way to practice, to inquire. Just take a few moments to look carefully or listen for what appeals to you.
Thank you. And so what I'll do next time, my plan is to go further, give, live a lot of time for hearing of what you've explored in the discussion, but also to go a little bit further in looking at way further ways of balancing doing and non-doing, and then looking at is there a way of having my doing come more and more, we might say, out of being, or my doing come out of a kind of non-doing, which is actually an aspiration that we find in different spiritual traditions. And I'll, I'll bring that out in different ways. That'll be what I'll look at next time. So for right now, and then let me again invite uh, just to take a moment uh, to reflect within. Is there some theme that you have a question about, something I mentioned that you want to ask about, perhaps something you want to share, one of your own experiences, maybe looking into these themes? Just take a few moments to reflect, and then in, in a moment we'll open things up for our, our shared discussion. Take about a minute or so to see what comes to you as something which you'd like to look more deeply at. So thanks, and you could either um, use the raised hand function, which I see has already started. We have two people there. You can either use the raised hand function, or if, or you can uh, put something into the chat, uh, a question or a comment. Again, it doesn't have to be a question. It could be something you want to share. Uh, and uh, also, uh, if the technology isn't so easy for you, you can also... Uh, physically raise your hand and Tolan can uh, scan that. Okay. All right. Uh, Victoria, would you like to ask your question? Yeah. Hi. Welcome back. Hi, Victoria. Um, yeah. Hi. Hi. It's great to see you again. Um, I, this resonates very closely with something that um, I was in a, in a um, group a few days ago um, where um, yin and yang were associated with um, actually the words that were used were mercy and justice, mm. but also in the sense of the, um, you know, yang being, being the doing, I guess. I mean, as you were speaking today, I was sort of reflecting back on that other talk and thinking um, it's, it seems parallel in many ways. The, um, the yang being the doing component and the yin being the, um, the not doing or the receptive um, of course, that's also gender related, but um, but I'm wondering about the um, the mercy and justice part. Like like if the perfectionistic tendency, um, which with which I'm very much imbued <laughs> from my conditioning, if that in fact expresses itself in in a in a young sort of way, if it's a more more sort of aggressive or active, and then the yin is a more kind of um, in that, in that sense, the justice and mercy idea, the mercy being that if you're receptive, you're kind of letting things come to you with acceptance and not trying to control. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. I think there, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, the, 
I mean, there are obvious parallels with the yin-yang model, which, which is again related to gender. And again, sometimes we use the language of talking about, quote, masculine and, quote, feminine, without those being, uh, you know, directly related to, uh, uh, to gender. In other words, uh, men can develop their inner masculine as well as their inner feminine, and as can women. And so, uh, yeah, and so I think, and in talking about mercy and justice, it's interesting. What came to mind for me is that probably we could bring the, this sense of the more the doing or the a kind of doing or more kind of recept, receptivity into many, many areas of life. And what occurred to me, you know, in terms of something like justice, is that we have a dimension of justice, which sometimes is called retributive justice. It's where we look for accountability. And there's definitely a kind of doing, but there's also restorative justice, which involves more listening, both sides listening to each other. It might involve more empathy, more compassion, more mercy. And so I think many of our core understandings uh, would be uh, able to be understood in these two ways. We might, another way we might say it is a more, you know, again, with uh, maybe a more masculine notion or a more feminine notion of justice, with both of them ultimately being valuable, right? mm -hmm. having valuable aspects. But they can be unbalanced when we just have one without the other. We probably could look at that in a whole variety of dimensions. Thank you. Can I say one more thing? This is just a comment. Um, I'm a, a concert violinist by profession. Oh, yeah. And I love the string instrument um, metaphor because it's, um, I was just thinking what happens if, if I tune the instrument much higher than it's supposed to go, the string's too high, they will break. There's no, it's like, so it's like the heartbreaking in a sense, yeah. <laughs> like the, um, the Japanese character you're talking about. And, um, but if they're too loose, then I can't project any kind of sound at all. It's just, you know, they're just so flabby. They don't actually resonate. So that, I just thought that was such a beautiful um, metaphor. Yeah. Thank you, Victoria. And I also, what occurred to me is also, we talk about playing music. But basically, if it's too loose or too tight, you can't play. And I think there's something, maybe I'll come back to that, there's something very linked with this aspiration towards having our, our being or, and our, our doing come out of a non-doing. I think that's related to play. Play has a quality in which we're not consciously doing something, right? And there's a quality of, you know, we think of qualities of spontaneity, creativity, when we play. So that's something I hadn't connected, but it just occurred to me when we talk about playing music. And of course, we can play music in a very doing mode, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you, Victoria. All right. Um, let me uh, share a question that came in on the chat. Okay. And then we can move to the next person in line. Um, so someone shared in the chat, and not doing is sometimes based in like despair or depression. Yeah. And doing can be a way of counteracting that. Yeah. Could you comment on that just in terms of how depression kind of falls into that? that yeah, yeah. Very, very helpful. Very, very helpful comment. Um, 
in question, yeah, there. I mean, there are, there are forms of uh, not doing which can reflect uh, difficulty, challenge, uh, even breakdown. And so I think we each of these can have its mode where it becomes dysfunctional. You know, so there can be a kind of non not doing which comes because we're paralyzed or we're caught in a very intense uh, depression, right? And so um, here we're talking about situations where we have some choice of bringing in the doing or not doing. And in other situations, we don't have the choice and we need to somehow... Uh, heal and transform to where the possibility of doing is there. So I think that's very helpful that not doing is not, you know, by itself uh, isn't the goal because not doing could be a, an expression of a big problem. You know, just, just as, uh, you know, compulsive doing could be a problem as well. Thank you. All right. Um, Jack, Jack, would you like to ask your question? Hi, thank you for today. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so something that just came up for me when you were talking about doing and not doing was sort of this concept of busyness. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would love for you to speak a little bit more about that sometime because, I, you know, I have people in my life and I hear a lot of things like, oh, look at the time or, you know, like, oh, you know, it didn't get all I wanted to get done today or... Yeah. You know, um, and it really just got me thinking, you know, obviously the amount of time in a day never changes and we at the, you know, other than the obligations that we have around work and things like that, we get to choose how we spend our time. So I guess my question sort of or thing that I'd like you to discuss, I guess, is how does, how does one address that feeling of busyness of feeling overscheduled or feeling like maybe that they haven't spent their time in the way that is most valuable or most important to them or aligns with their values. So I guess that would be something I'd love to hear you talk about more. Yeah. Busyness and, and that feeling of busyness and how it arises. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Jack. Uh, I think really crucial question. And um, some of it, I think there are multiple ways to look into that. And, uh, a lot of this is related to social conditioning. In other words, in some cultures or subcultures, there's not the same pressure to be busy. In some jobs, there's a lot of pressure to be busy, productive, and so forth, or to uh, always be engaged. And in other types of work, it's not quite the same way. So it's, there's a very strong... Uh, general social conditioning, uh, which, you know, probably comes a lot out of uh, the last three, four or five hundred years in the West and is increasingly brought to the whole world, um, connected with capitalism and with other, other kinds of uh, economic systems. <clears throat> that, that being said, um, so there, there, we may be in certain situations where the busyness is through a particular workplace 
is uh, you know socially reproduced. There's uh, you know it'd be very hard to not be busy if you're in a, a workspace where there are expectations. Maybe you're in a startup and you're expected to do 60 or 70 hours a week, right? Um, you know, if you brought up uh, colleagues, could we talk about uh, whether we're overly busy? <laughs> Sorry, we don't have time for that, <laughs> right, or something like that. Um, so there is a, a large amount of social conditioning, and certain situations make it hard not to be busy. That being said, we can uh, we can look into our conditioning in a variety of ways. We can set our mindfulness to notice when something like a sense of uh, I need to be doing something comes up, when there's some internal pressure to do something or to be busy. We can also see this, as I mentioned, sometimes when we are in a period where we don't have anything scheduled. It could be, for some of us, it could be a weekend or a vacation or a day off. And we just notice what comes up in the mind. So I think a lot of it is actually looking with mindfulness at what comes up in our own minds and our own experiences. That could be very much something which we do uh, next week. We could also, uh, you know, as I suggested, sometimes our meditations or our times with days off or our retreats can bring up what is most important for me. Ultimately, busyness, the, one of the negative aspects of busyness, it can cover over what's important, right? And so we have, we get to be 70 years old and we've been busy for the last 50 years and we actually don't know what's most important to us. That's tragic, right? And so we want to, so, uh, because we're really looking at the, the, we're questioning the kind of busyness that particularly that covers over what's most important or becomes a kind of conditioning or habit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and yes, and I think essentially, like, just to come back to what you were saying earlier, my question would be to the person who, you know, is saying that they're overly busy, but has then chosen to join a startup that they know is going to take 60, 70 hours a week of their time, you know? Yeah. And so the choices we make may put us in positions where we end up being busy also. Anyway, I don't want to take too much of everybody's time, but I just wanted to touch on that the choices and yeah. how we choose to make ourselves busy even. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Yeah, we have we have a busy lineup of questions and discussions, so we need to get to the next one very quickly. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> so, we're, we're busy. We're busy with our <laughs> we discussions. Are busy, yes. Okay. But but yeah, to I think so it's related to seeing also what comes up. How do we have access to what's really important? And sometimes we just need to clear away the space and time for that. So do I have enough time and space and what happens when I consider letting go of something? Does does anxiety come up? Yeah. So thank thanks Tolan. We can go to go to the to I think it's uh, Liz. Yeah. Um Liz, do you still 
because I have some questions in the chat as well. Okay. Yeah, maybe Liz has been there for a while. Let's do one question in the chat, and then we'll get to Liz, and that might that might complete us. Okay, let's. Um, I'll do the question in the chat first, and then we'll open up to Liz. Okay. All right. So um, the question is: On the one hand, there's the instruction um, to call to like relieve the suffering of the world, and on the other hand, there's falling into wanting to do things and to fix things, um, and not being skillful about that. You know, and not being um, empathetic to the suffering. Um, any thoughts about that and that balance between? Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's a, again really crucial question. We could we could explore for a whole session that question. Um, again, this is what what is pointing to is the importance of this uh, balance of inner work with compassionate action, and. I think it's particularly important if we're in, you know, in terms of looking at our work or our helping or our compassionate action to be able to do inner work and see what the motivation is to have some inner work to see where we're coming from, you know, and to, am I coming from wanting to be seen as a good person? Is there a self identification? Am I trying to fix things because I'm nervous about people being uncomfortable? And that can coexist with a sincere aspiration to help others. So this um, importance of inner work to help us sort out what the different motivations are. And many of us, for our most important endeavors, there is mixed motivation, which is okay, right? But our inner practice can help uh, open up uh, things so that we, as it were, purify our motivation. And, and work with, you know, am I a fixer? Am I, uh, you know, am I, where am I coming from? Yeah, thanks. All right, so um, Liz, would you, you still have your question you'd like to ask? Oh, always, of course. <laughs> All right, beautiful. Uh, um, thank you. This is a tremendously important topic, and I have never heard a teacher talk about it. So thank you. And I'm about to become a mindfulness meditation teacher. So I'm, as I said to Philip the other night, I'm uh, beginner's mind. I'm, I'm into beginner's mind after 25 years of practice. And I'm very excited about it. And um, Philip often says, um, just be at the end of a meditation, just be. And I agree with you that this is a, a very big topic, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up. But after 20 years of practice, last June, at a, at a home retreat, I started really to let go of effort after 20 years of practice. Yeah. And it's been miraculous. And um, I just want to think about that. And, and I agree that this is not for beginners. Uh, the idea of maybe letting go of effort. I think at the beginning, my, my, my thought is, and you may talk about this, hopefully, that there is effort at the beginning of learning to meditate, that effort is important. So I'm just mulling this stuff over because yeah. I'm beginning to teach. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you, Liz. Uh, there's a lot there. And again, one thing is to remember that we use effort sometimes in different ways. We can talk about more active effort and more receptive effort. 
which is, you know, sometimes just the effort to be present. And so it, uh, I think we, some people may talk about effort and it can involve aspects of not doing. But, so we want to be a little careful with the language. And, but I agree with you that generally speaking, beginners, and you'll be uh, working a lot with beginners, that generally uh, most people need to emphasize uh, essentially bringing in the training, which is a kind of doing. And so I think that's right, that uh, initially, or if we're really, really distracted, doing is usually what's called for. If we're beginning or my mind is just really, really distracted, I just need to bring a little bit of stability to the mind, then we generally do in our meditation. And also, uh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Well, our favorite mantra this year for me is responding rather than reacting. That's right. Yeah. So I think there's something of that in this. Yeah. That bring, that brings out other dimensions that, uh, uh, we can be in our, our, our doing can either be responsive or reactive, right? And some of our doing may be more conditioned and habitual. So there's a lot to sort out. And, and we may get the guidance you were referring to Philip Moffat's guidance, just be. But uh, that, that's almost like a Zen koan because we're not given instructions. So we just sit with that. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, how do I just be? How do I, how do, I do just being? <laughs> right, or somewhat we might say that. So... I think we'll explore some of that next time. I think I, I like that theme. So, uh, Tolan, is there if there's a final chat question, I can do that and maybe even respond briefly, and then we'll, that'll be it. Oh, okay. Um, there are two left. Um, okay, I will. This is just a comment someone shared. I'll I'll share that. Um, just a thought of re um, like dysfunctional not doing. Um, it occurs to this person that excessive media consumption can sort of mimic receptivity in the sense that you might feel like the receptive need for connection and just be, instead of calling a friend or meditating, you're just scrolling social media platforms. And yeah. these platforms aren't bad, but they can kind of create this kind of unhelpful not doing, is the comment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really, uh, a, lot, a lot of it's in intention and motivation, just to keep looking at that. It's, the activity itself could could go either way. Yeah, and then uh, one question. Okay. Yeah. The uh, final question. Um, oh, it's actually another comment. I apologize. Okay. Um, so I don't think we have any more questions. Should I read the comment? Yeah, just read that. That'll that'll bring us to completion. All right. Um, I have found my, the, the commenter saying, I found myself standing and not doing, not thinking, just being, but I became fearful that I was losing myself. At the same time, I believe in non-duality and a lack of stable self that directs my actions. The not doing felt really good for as long as I could hold it without trying. Yeah. Yeah. It's really pointing to the, how this is really uh, an inquiry and we might hang out in the non-doing territory uh, for a certain amount of time, and then we sort of get out of balance, and then we come back with doing. So it's a continual exploration and inquiry to see what's there, see what the conditioning is, 
see if there are any limiting beliefs or deeper habitual patterns. And it's, um, I think it's a lifetime exploration. So we'll go into this further next time, but the, uh, the questions and comments are great. So we'll continue. So let's finish by, again, remembering your intention for the next week. Take about 30 seconds just to bring back the intention for continuing your own exploration. How might you do this best? <laughs> And we close with the traditional dedication of merit. May our time together be a benefit for us, be of benefit for those in our own circles, in our own worlds, and then go beyond those circles to be a benefit ultimately for all beings, knowing that all beings includes us. So thanks very much, everyone, and uh, see you next week. And I'll do I'll do my goodbye motion. Okay. Bye bye, everyone. And you can unmute everyone, uh, Tolan, and they can say goodbye. Bye, Donald. Bye. Bye bye. Till next time. Thank you, Donald. Thank you.